you have your Bible this morning, let's open it up to Luke chapter 10. And while you're turning there, let me just say how good it is to see you this morning. I know we're in that busy time of year where we're all going in different directions, it seems, but it is good to be able to gather together uh, in this place as the body of Christ to sing praises to the Lord, to remind ourselves of all that God has done for us and remind ourselves what the mission is, what we're called to do and what we're called to be in the world. It was a blessing this morning to wake up and it not be sweltering outside, right? And so that, that north breeze is definitely something that we praise God for. Just a little coolness, as we've already had so much heat in the summer, is just officially beginning. Uh, it's an exciting week as we're going to be sending a group of students and sponsors to Falls Creek. Uh, we're expecting and asking God to do great things in the life of our student ministry this week. And let me invite you just to join us in a time of prayer throughout the week as we're thinking about our students and asking God just to continue to move in their hearts and lives. And for some of them to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for others that their relationship with the Lord would be deepened, that they would be strengthened, that they would understand that they can be disciples and followers and leaders uh, uh, for the Lord Jesus today, and we're expecting God to do great things. Well, before we get into our passage this morning, I want to take a moment. I think all of us are aware, unless you've been living under a rock for the last few days, uh, that a, a, a great uh, thing has happened for those of us who believe in the sanctity of life, that Roe v. Wade had been overturned, and, and that's definitely... something that we praise God for as we believe that all life has value, that all life is important because we are made in the image of God and therefore all life has inherent value and it just is a great moment for us to celebrate that many prayers have been answered in that. I think it's also important for us to realize that while this is a turning point and a monumental decision, it's by no means the end in that quest for us to seek and ask God to do great things to protect the unborn. And really, it goes even further than that. And I don't want to go on a great dialogue about the sanctity of life this morning, as that's not the theme of the message. But nonetheless, it's an incredibly important thing that has transpired but one of the things I want us to know as the church is that this is an even greater call to action because one of the things that's very much been on my wife and mine's heart over the last decade is the importance of foster care ministry, of adoptive ministry, of making sure that we're standing in the gap for children who are in situations uh, that, to be honest, with this decision is probably going to increase. I want you to know that the different agencies and people that I've walked with, it's rarely that a month goes by that I don't receive an email, a text message, or a phone call that just says, do you know of any families who might be willing to venture into foster care, who might be willing to step in because we've got more children than we have homes, that we've got more need than we have people who are willing to step up and meet the need. And I think this is a reminder for us that praise God that because more children will be born, guess what that also means? There's going to be a greater need that's going to arise in the near future because of this. And church, we can't just sit here and celebrate when we see a victory like this and not be willing to stand in the gap and, and meet the needs of children. And so here's what I'm simply asking, uh, that God would raise up in this place families who are willing to foster, families who are willing to adopt. And as God brings those up in this place, that the rest of us would surround them in any and every way that we can to help them. Uh, it's going to just continue to be an important thing that's going to happen in our state. Uh, normally, and I, I want to make sure I, don't, I, I give you correct numbers, but normally at any given time in the state of Oklahoma, there's 900 children any day that are in custody. 
And I want you to think about that, that there's 900 children who are being displaced from their homes, and who better than the people of God who understand the fact that God has stepped in and adopted us and loved us and cared for us, what better group of people than to stand in and do that? And I would be the first to tell you that it's not just a decision you make on a whim. I would be the first to tell you that it's not romantic in anybody's stretch of the imagination, that there is frustration and and tears and heartache as my wife and our family have fostered 12 or or had 12 or 13 different placements. I can't remember the exact number. And and our our youngest that that we have, if you ever wonder why when you see my family out, There's me and my wife, and then there's 19, almost 20, and 16-year-old boys, and then there's this this little one that's three that's running alongside us. Have you ever wondered, where did she come from? Uh, By God's grace, we were able to adopt her through foster care. And so she's been that blessing that God has added into our family. But church, we need to make sure that we're going to stand in the gap and be this. And so on one hand, may we celebrate the gift that God has given us by, by overturning this, May we also understand that it's by no means the end of it, but it, may we also see the opportunity, the work that needs to be done by the people of God. And, and I think I would encourage us to prayerfully start, how can we impact that today? How can we as a church, how can we as families, how can we as individuals and couples be on the front lines, not just on the fray watching, but on the front lines uh, uh, ministering in this capacity? So with that in mind, let us pray. Let us praise God for this, for this historic moment that many of us have prayed for and desired for quite some time. But may we not just stand here in victory and think we won because it's by no means the end and there's so much more ministry to be done. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you. God, you are ever present and ever at work in our lives. And Father, I think that this decision that, that happened on Friday, the official word of it is just a reminder that God you work in your time and in your way and while many have prayed for us for this for decades God to see a a historic moment in the life of our nation father we are grateful because God we believe that that you're at work yet at the same time God may we not just stop and say well it's done God may we not just view from the lens of we've won But God, may we be agents, ministers of reconciliation in the world. May we be peacemakers as your word tells us to be. Father, but God, may we also be willing to do the hard work, the difficult work, the work that you've called us to as you've told us that that religion that is pure and undefiled helps widows, it helps orphans, it helps the segment of the population that cannot speak or defend themselves. And so, Father, would you rise up in this church a group of people who have a heart to do the difficult ministry? Father, would you rise up in this church a desire for us to stand in the gap for children from birth all the way into their teen years, God, who are in need of people who understand who you are, what you've done, how you've rescued us to be people that you use to rescue others. Father, we pray today that as we look into your holy and true and divine word, that God, you would speak and speak clearly. Father, we pray today that you would help us to see the joy of salvation that's been granted and given to us that we've sung so clearly about this morning. Father, may we leave here built up 
encouraged, strengthened, ready to go to work for you. Father, I do pray for our student ministry as tomorrow morning they'll load up in buses and and head to camp. And God, we know that there's nothing mysterious nor magical about camp, but God, we know that it's a place that you can move and work. And so, Father, I pray from from every student, for every leader, for every uh, worker who's going to be there this week, God, may it be a place that you use to draw people to yourself, to strengthen our students in their faith, God, that they might be more like you. We love you, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We love to celebrate, right? I mean, I think you and I would agree that we are a culture, we are a group of people who look for opportunities and reasons to celebrate. Uh, every year, more, most of us in this room will celebrate our birthday. Now, many of us will lie about what age we are, but nonetheless, we like to be celebrated. We like to acknowledge the fact that we've been blessed with another year on this earth. And I think it's very interesting how that kind of affects us when we're young. We're so excited about it and so thankful for it. And, you know, every year is a, is, is a big deal. And then we go through this gap where we like the presents, we like to be taken out to, to eat, but we don't like so much the, the number that goes along with it. But then you get on the other end of it. And I've been fortunate as a pastor, even in my young age, to attend a lot of birthday parties for people who reach their 80s and their, and their 90s and sometimes even 100. And why is that a big deal? Because they look and they say, hey, look at the longevity of life that God has blessed us with. And so there's just something interesting, something special about when you live to that place of age where all of a sudden you realize, man, this is not normal. This is, is beyond normal, and God has blessed me with another year. And rightfully so, we celebrate the gift of life when we celebrate a birthday. Many of us in this room celebrate our anniversaries, right? Because we understand that, that marriage is not always a fairy tale, that it's not always easy, that it often requires work and difficulty. There's joys and there's lows, but at the same time, we would say, hey, there is something to be said about another year of marriage. There's something to be said about perseverance, about a celebrating life with another person. And so rightfully so, we celebrate our anniversaries. We say, hey, this is a big deal. It's something that we want to acknowledge And then there's something really special about some of those landmark years, like when you hit 10, and then you hit 20, and then 25. And again, as a pastor, I've been fortunate enough to to have uh, celebrations with people who have had 50 years of marriage. And I've done funerals for people just recently who have celebrated 64 years of marriage during their time together. And we look at that and say, what a blessing. That's something to be celebrated. If you've ever had time to click on your iCloud or Google Calendar, just holidays, right? What you will find is that we have come up with as a culture all kinds of crazy things to celebrate. And I mean, if you just did a search today, and I don't want you to do it now because you'll get entrenched in it and you won't listen to anything that I say, but if you just just Google weird holidays in the United States, it is amazing the number of holidays that we recognize. Why? Because it seems that we're always looking for a reason to celebrate something. Now, as we look at this passage this morning, starting in verse 17, we see that, remember, Jesus has sent out the 70 or the 72 disciples and basically said, now, I want you to know I'm giving you authority. And you're going to have authority to heal the sick. And you're going to be able to speak and proclaim in my name. And your responsibility is to leverage this authority that I've given you to proclaim this reality. The kingdom of God is near. 
And so the reason that Jesus would often heal and the reason that Jesus would often perform miracles was not just because he loved people and wanted to do good by them. That is part of it. But what it was doing was proving, validating the message that he was coming to bring. That look, the one whom God promised that was going to set the captives free, the one that God promised that was going to heal those who were sick, the one that God promised that was going to come and bring life, look, he's here. And he's doing it in a physical way, but the physical thing that I'm doing is not even the the tip of the iceberg, because what I want to do more than just heal your body is heal your soul. More than what I want to do is enhance your physical life, I want to give you eternal life. I want to give you true life. And so what Jesus was doing often is he would go from town to town and village to village and region to region is he was performing miracles that were validating the message that he was proclaiming. Now as you read through the, back, the book of Acts, we see that, that, that God's doing the exact same thing through the apostles, right? That he's given them supernatural ability. And what's the point of them? It's to validate the message that they're proclaiming. Yes, this is indeed a group of messengers, sent ones from Jesus himself that are able to perform the very same signs and wonders that he did. But more importantly, what they're doing is proclaiming a message of repentance and faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ that they might experience forgiveness of sin and they might experience the hope of salvation. Now, what we see unfolding in this passage is they're going to return. So remember, they've been sent out. They spent some days, weeks, maybe even months in their, in, in their ministry of the Lord Jesus. And here they come back, and now they're reporting. And this is the exact same thing that we saw unfold when the 12 apostles were sent out. And they come back, and they're saying, Lord, this is what we experienced. This is what was going on. This is what, what, what we were able to do. And they're marveling. They're in awe. They're rejoicing. Why? Because they've been able to accomplish something that they never thought they would be able to accomplish. And so in verse 17, it says this, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now, now this is amazing, right? We know that during the time of Jesus, there is this heightened work of demonic activity as they're trying to stop what God is doing through the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And and it seems that everywhere they go, there is this visible presence uh, of of demonic activity that we've talked about in the past. But Jesus said, you're going to be able to to heal sickness. And and they're saying, Lord, we're even able to, to have power over spirits. Now, this is important in your name, right? They understood where the power was coming from. It wasn't like they were just going out on their own on some demon hunting adventure, right? Where they're just going out trying to display their power. They're like, Jesus, what we found is we're doing what you've told us to do, that you've even given us power and authority over demons. Now, Jesus' response is going to be interesting here. He's not going to high-five them. He's not going to say, yeah, you do, right? He's going to look and say, hey, don't miss the big picture. So this isn't an all-out rebuke, like they're wrong for being excited about what they're able to do, but what he's wanting to do is to bring them back in to see the big picture of what he's going to do. Now, now what I want us to see as we look at this here in just a moment, and I think this is so important for us, is, is reasons that we have to be joyful, reasons that we have reason to celebrate as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but I think there's a little bit of a warning for us as believers that we don't miss the big picture of what Jesus is really doing in our life. And and a way that I would say it is this. Sometimes if we're not careful, we can focus more on the secondary blessings that salvation brings us rather than seeing and focusing on the primary blessing that salvation brings us. And so the Bible tells us this in James, right? That every good and perfect gift is from above. 
And so I think all of us, if we would really stop and, and look at our life, we would say, man, there are a thousand blessings that God gives us every day. And if we were really to sit down and number them and really to be mindful and thoughtful, we would come up with all kinds of ways of these gifts that God has given us. And they come in variety of forms. I mean, some are big and overt. Some are simple and kind of behind the scenes. But as you begin to count them, as the old hymn says, right, count your many blessings and they will remind you all the Lord has done in our heart and life. But all of them are the same. And what do I mean by that? All of the gifts come from the Lord, but some of them, when you think about the forgiveness of sin, you think about the reconciliation that's restored with the Lord, it's far greater than some of the other more simple blessings that God has given. And it's not to say they're not all important. But what I want us to notice this morning is this. Let us not forsake the primary blessing by focusing too much on the secondary ones. Now, now here's what I mean. Here's Jesus' response to that. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Interesting response, right? Almost seems to be like, what? But he's saying, now listen, I know you have power and authority, but I want you to know I've seen greater things than this. I've seen Satan the chief demon, the leader, the devil, right? This is the variety of terms that we would use to speak of this evil one. Now, now I want to stop here for just a moment before we get any further, and I want you to understand this. Satan is not some fictional character that we've developed to try to explain bad things and try to get good children to behave. We treat him that way, right? At some point in time in history, the devil has become this fictional character that we've drawn with little horns and a tail, and it would be an interesting study to find out where that kind of shifted and began. But nonetheless, it's kind of become this fictional idea that there's this good and there's this bad, and the good is represented by some angelic-type character, and the bad is represented by some little pitchfork-type character. And what I want you to understand today is this. When the Bible speaks in terms of Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, Lucifer, there's a variety of names that he would give, he's not speaking fictional, they're speaking in, in literal, reality. So a study of the Bible would tell us that Lucifer or Satan or the devil was one of the chief beings of God's creation in heaven, that was one of the leaders of the angelic realm, that he was beautiful, that he was powerful, that he had a lot of authority in heaven, but over a period of time, because of a prideful heart, he began to want the glory of God for himself. And so he began to want to be on an equal playing field with God, and he wasn't content with just being one of the chief of creations in heaven. He began to say, no, God, I want to be like you. Now, interestingly enough, as we follow the, the creation narrative and then the fall narrative, as Satan is tempting and working, guess what? He uses the same tactics of what he's guilty of to lure away the man and the woman, where they begin to say, God, we're not just content being a, a creation made in your image. No, God, we want to be like you. We want to be equal with you. Now, because of that, he leads a rebellion in heaven, and we know that the Bible would tell us that about a third of the angels in heaven followed him in that rebellion, and so God cast them out. And what I think Jesus is referring here to me in the most simple form, there's a little bit, bit of debate on what, what we think Jesus is referencing, but for me, the simplest way to read this is Jesus is saying, I was there when the chief of evil rebelled against God, and God cast him out like lightning. Now, I think one of the important things to read it this way is this, again, Jesus speaking to his deity. Jesus is not just some created being that showed up on the earth sometime in history. Jesus is the eternal second in uh, member of the Godhead 
who has existed eternally and has been there eternally. So he was there at that moment and place and time when Satan led that rebellion and God said, enough's enough, you've been cast out. Now, now what's Satan and his demons doing in the time being? Well, the Bible says that the majority of them are allowed to run to and fro on the earth until there's a time of judgment that's awaiting them where they will forever be punished and judged for what they've done. But this is the reference, right? So, so, so Jesus, you won't believe it. We're excited because evil spirits have submitted to us in your name. And Jesus says, whoa, before you get too excited about that, I was there when Satan was cast down like lightning. Look, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. Now, I think the best way to interpret this is figuratively, when he speaks of scorpions and snakes, the representative of evil and demonic power. Now, why do I say that? I don't encourage you to go home today and you got a rattlesnake in the yard and you hear this passage and you're like, barefoot, I'm going after it, baby. You know what I call that? Dumb. Just dumb, right? I mean, there's a lot of things you can do, but barefoot and going after it. And not to say in certain instances that might not be possible, right? Because we know of situations in the Bible where snakes bit people and it didn't harm them. But I think more what he's speaking to here is, I've given you authority over evil. Represented by scorpions and snakes and things of that nature. Because that's the power that I've given to you. However, verse 20, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you. So, so this isn't your chief joy. It's not that you're wrong for being excited about it. It's not that you're wrong for being happy about it. Just don't let this moment blind you to the real joy, which is, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, what does that mean? There's a variety of instances in Scripture where it speaks about our names being written in the book of life. A couple of references that I would give you would be Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. There's several references of it in the book of Revelation, one being very clear, which would be Revelation 21, 27. And basically, these references are all talking about the same thing. When it talks about our name being written in the book of life or in the Lamb's book of life, it's a reference to salvation. It's a reference to the fact that we have been gifted with this great grace from God where our sin debt has been forgiven, the penalty and the power of our sin has been dealt with, and now we are able to live a new life, an eternal life, an abundant life in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so here's what he's saying. Don't get so wrapped up in your ability to have authority over demons that you forget here's where your real joy is found your sin has been dealt with, and therefore, your name has been written in heaven, meaning what? You've been born again. You've been saved. You've had salvation. Now, as we look at this, here's the first joy that I want us to focus on this morning. Rejoice. Have joy, Christian, today, because your name has been written in heaven. Now, you would say, well, well I know that, right? I mean, this is something that we've talked about since, since you were a kid. I mean, this is something you've learned about at a very elementary and young age. And so, so why is this important for us to grasp it? Why is Jesus harping on it? Here's why. I think is it's easy for us at times to think about the secondary blessings that God has given us at the expense of forgetting the primary blessing that God has given us. And here's what it is. The greatest thing that God will ever give you in his, your life is himself. 
The greatest thing that God will ever give you in this life is your salvation. Now, why do we want to point that out? Because some of us are seeking God to bless us in a way that if we're not careful, we want to think is greater than the salvation that God has already given us. Some of us are longing for a spouse. And we're praying fervently and we're asking God, God, would you just send a spouse? Would you just give me someone that I can share my life with? Someone that I can do things with? And what's happened over time is you've allowed this desire for this blessing to remind you that even if God doesn't grant that prayer request for you, your name has been written in the book of life. There's nothing greater that God can give you today. Some of us desire healing And there's nothing wrong with that. You've received a diagnosis that that is not favorable. And in your heart and mind, in faith and in prayer, because God has told you to do this, you cry out and you say, God, would would you heal me? Would you restore the physical part of my body, the things that's ailing me inside? God, would you would you help me deal with that? And regardless of whether he does or does not, here's what you need to remember. If you're not careful, you allow your focus on that blessing from God to trump the greatest blessing that he's already given you, which is your salvation. Now, we could do this all day long with the blessings and things that God has given us. And sometimes what happens is God answers that prayer and gives us that thing we want. And then all of a sudden, that second blessing that God has given us, or secondary, becomes such a focus of our life that now all of a sudden, it begins to take place of the giver of all the blessings that we've received. And we lose sight of, listen, the greatest thing that we can have in this life is God himself. So, so let me give you an example, and to be honest with you, it's changed the way that I, that I preach, especially in funerals uh, for years, because for most of my life, I would sit in a funeral, and here's what I would hear, things like this, right? Your loved one, if he's a believer, is in a better place. That's true. Followed up by things like this. Guess what? They're in a better place because they're not sick anymore. True that, Right? Praise God. And if you've ever struggled with a debilitating illness, I mean, praise God that physically they've been restored and that's not an issue any longer. And then I would hear things like, and you know what? In that better place, it's perfect. It's beautiful. It's pristine. It's better than anything you could ever imagine here on this earth. True statement. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't fathom as beautiful as a place in, we can see in this world. And your mind automatically will go to some place. For some of us, it's an ocean. It's a beach. For others of us, it's a mountain. Uh, whatever it might be, that place that you can imagine in your life that's beautiful here on this earth, that you're like, that's my paradise. Here's what the Bible says, that heaven is a far greater place than that. But you want to know something? Those things pale in comparison to this reality of heaven. It's so wonderful because God's there. Right? And so if you're longing for salvation and heaven and death because you're like, one of these days, this body of mine's gonna be better. That's true, but let me tell you, that's not what makes heaven so great. 
And if you're longing for heaven because you're tired of this dump of the earth that we live on, that you're like, you know, all I see is heat and weeds and everything else. I'm ready for a place I don't have to mow again. I don't know if heaven's going to be like that or not, because here's what I know, that Adam and Eve and the perfection of the garden still had to work. So I'm not going to tell you you're not going to have to cultivate. I'm just telling you there's not going to be thistles and thorns and hard ground like that. But before you think you're just going to coast and, and be retirement mode for the rest of your life, guess what? I think there's a theology of work that the Bible speaks to that on the new earth that God creates, we're going to work. So just buckle up for that. But nonetheless, here's what I want you to make sure you know above all else. What we long for as believers when we leave this world is to quote what the scriptures say, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Don't rejoice over the secondary blessings as if that's it. They're there. Here's what we find our joy in. We've experienced the grace of God in salvation. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In church, that right there is reason for us to have joy unexplainable for all eternity. Now look at what he says here in verse 21. At that time, he, being Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. So, so he's, he's joyful as he's explaining this and telling them to this. And I think that just speaks to God's heart for people. I think it speaks to the joy of what salvation truly is, that Jesus is joyful talking about it. And he said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. Here's another reason for joy, and Jesus is is joyful about it. He says, I'm rejoicing, Father, because you've chosen by your divine plan and sovereign will to hide these truths. What truths? These gospel truths from the wise and intelligent. Now, now is he saying if you're smart, you can't be saved? No, what he's speaking to is a type of people who think that they have the answers. In their own mind, they're wise and intelligent. In their own mind, they can explain and make reason of it. So in their own mind, honestly, this is where this pride comes from. God, we don't need you. We got this. Now, Paul explains this to us in Romans chapter 1, right? Where he says there's a a variety of reasons that God's wrath is revealed against mankind. But one of them is simply this, and I'm going to paraphrase it. We think we know better than God does. And you want to know what the root of every sin is, honestly? God, I think I know better than you. I know what you say. I know what you want me to do. But God, in this situation, I know what's better for myself than you do. So therefore, I'm going to go against what you say, and I'm going to do what I think is right. God, I know that you say I'm going to be happier when I do things this way. But God, I believe I'm going to be happier if I do things my way. And so therefore, I'm going to forsake your way, and I'm going to do what I think is going to make me the most happy, God, because I know better than you do. And really at the root of every sin, there's this reality that we look at God, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and we say, God, we know better than you. And Paul says God's wrath is revealed against mankind because even though the truth was evident to us, we've suppressed it. And what we find is happening is right here is God says, for those of you who think you're wise and think you know better, you're not seeing the blessing. So so remember the scriptures tell us this, that one of the reasons that Jesus taught in parables was that so the spiritually undiscerned would not see the truth, but those who are spiritually discerned would. And so so we love Jesus' teaching in the Bible, right? Because he uses a lot of stories, and, and, and we who are spiritually discerned are like, oh yeah, I get that. 
But those who weren't spiritually discerned, they were left puzzling, like, like what's he talking about? What, what's the point here? And they were blind to, to what Jesus was really trying to say. And so Jesus says, rejoice, because while the truth has been hidden from those who are wise or intelligent, it's been revealed to who? Infants. Now, Jesus isn't just saying that only babies can accept the truth, right? What's he saying? What, what do infants represent? Why did Jesus say at times when he had a little child on his knee, unless you become like one of these, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God? I think at its base, here's the truth. He's revealed it to infants. Why? Because infants are needy. They're needy, terribly needy, obnoxiously needy at times, right? I mean, if you've ever had an infant, a small child around, here's one of the things that you know that they depend on you for everything. They constantly cry over the, the biggest and littlest things. And, and what are they doing when they cry? They're trying to tell you they need something. And, and, and why is it then that the Bible would say, you've got to be like a child? Well, it's because you have to come to a point where you understand you don't have the answers. And you can't do this for yourself. And your eyes are open to see, I have great need. A need so great, God, that I'm willing to cry out to you and ask you to fix what's wrong because I'm incapable of doing this. Now, why is it that the older we get, the harder it is for us to come to salvation? Statistically, that would, that would bear out. Because the older we get, not only do the harder our hearts get, but the more we begin to say, I don't need someone else. I can do this myself. Men, what's the hardest thing for you to do? Admit that you don't know something and ask for help, right? I mean, this is like an age-old man dilemma, and it's not that women don't fall into this category too, but women come to their senses typically far quicker than men do. I got some amens on that one, and no doubt they were female voices, and whoever she's sitting by better take note. But nonetheless, it's hard for us to admit we have need. It's hard for us to, to, to fall on our knees. And so, so I'm going to give you just an honest example from my own life. Uh, seven, eight years ago, and I, and I hope this is encouraging to you, and I hope it doesn't make you think less of me, but if it does, I don't really care. Uh, seven, eight years ago, I began to realize, like, I need to talk with someone. I mean, the weight of pastoring, some things that had gone on in my life, and you know, here I was as a pastor always telling people, like, you need to talk to someone, right? We have the body of Christ. There's a reason why God has blessed us with each other. And, and in pride, sometimes you're like, no, I'm supposed to be the guy helping other people, and so I don't, I, it's not my job to go to someone else. It's my job to help other people. And finally, by God's grace, he humbled me to the point where I'm like, man, I need to talk with someone about some things. And so I went to a pastoral counselor, another guy that was on a staff at another church who had a background in counseling, but had also been a pastor and understood kind of that, that load. And uh, I finally just humbled myself and said, I'm going to go. I'm going to do that. Now, I wish I could say that I just drove over there with a smile on my face and just ran right in and was like, hey, help me. But that's not what happened. After I made the appointment on the phone, which is one of the hardest things I've ever done, by the way, I got in my truck and began to drive over there, and the entire 45-minute drive on the way over there, I was trying to give myself every reason why I didn't need to go. I'm busy. I've got a lot to do. My problems aren't that bad. What if someone found out that I'm, that I'm getting help? 
I mean, all of these things. And so like, I'm trying to come up with all of these excuses that I can my entire ride over there. And I even get into the parking lot and pull in and I look at my watch and I'm a little bit early and a real part of me just wanted to leave. Well, after God gave me the grace to walk in there, I walked in and I told him who I was and my appointment time. And she's like, well, he'll be with you shortly. Here's some chairs that you can sit in. I said, well, do you have a restroom? And she said, yes, it's right around the corner. And as I walked around the corner, I realized that there was an exit right by the bathroom. <laughs> and I'm in the bathroom thinking the whole time, when I walk out of this bathroom, should I turn right back down to where I was going to sit? Or do I turn left and go out that door and no one will ever know I wasn't here but that lady. And she doesn't know anybody back at my church anyway. But by God's grace, I sat. I was called in to an opportunity to speak with this, this fine Christian man. And as I sat there, he asked me a question. And you know what my first inclination was? Was to lie. How are you doing? Fine. Which I almost wanted to ask him, how do you think I'm doing? Because you think I would be here? But right, but right, he's just trying to like, like work me into that conversation. And, and so he began to ask me some questions. And I just found myself with this tendency not to want to admit the struggle that was going on. Not to want to admit the weakness that was inside of me. Not wanting to admit the frustrations that I was experiencing. Why? Pride. Pride. Just didn't want to admit it, right? And so the older we get, here's the point the harder it is for us to admit that we have need. The harder it is for us to look at someone, even though everyone in the room knows you're broken and you know they're broken, it's hard to admit we're broken. And Jesus said, be joyful when God's opened your eyes and revealed to you that you're like a child and that you're in need. One of the reasons that we have to rejoice today is because God in His grace has opened our eyes, revealed to us our need and the solution in Jesus Christ. Now some of us read this passage and we get a little upset, right? Because we say, well, well I've got an issue where God says He's hidden these things from some and revealed them to others. Like, like, like why would God do that? And, and here's my simple answer. Verse 21b says, according to his good pleasure. I can't give you a whole lot of like why God does what he does. Here's what I know. God doesn't owe me an answer why he does what he does. Secondly, I'm foolish if I think I would even understand the answer that he gave me because I'm not God. But thirdly, there's part of an answer here according to his good pleasure. And let me just tell you this, church. Whatever God does according to his good pleasure is indeed good and it is right. And if you spend too much time trying to focus on the why, you miss out on the blessing of this verse. If you're a believer, it's been revealed to you. And so, so don't miss out on the blessing because you're trying to figure out the why. Some was hidden, some it's revealed. What does that mean? I'm not saying it's not okay to do some investigative work in Scripture. I'm just saying don't do it at the, at the expense of not being able to stop and just say, God, thank you that you revealed it to me. God, thank you that you opened my eyes and helped me see because, God, if you had not done this, if you had not chosen me before the foundations of the world, God, if you have not given me a heart with, with repentance and faith to where I could believe and trust in the redemptive work of Jesus, God, there would be no hope for me. But because you've chosen to open my eyes, God, I'm forgiven. God, I've been reconciled unto you. God, there's a home and a place for me in heaven with you for all eternity. In church, for that, we have reason to have great joy. Look at verse 23. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, 
Blessed are the eyes that see the things that you see. So he looks at his disciples privately. Now, now what have they seen? Man, they've seen a lot, right? I mean, they've seen Jesus being baptized, the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, the Father speaking from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. They've been in a boat when Jesus has been able to calm the sea where they've looked at each other and said, what kind of guy is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? They've watched Jesus heal. They've listened to Jesus teach. I mean, they have experienced things that that we can't help but imagine. Yet at the same time, we have the blessing of God revealing himself to us in the written word and in the spirit of God that enables us to be uh, partakers in this blessing. Look at what he says to him. Blessed are the eyes that see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see the things that you see, but didn't see them. To hear the things that you hear, but didn't hear them. What's Jesus saying? We forget because we can pick up these 66 books of the Bible and read them relatively quickly, right? Right? I mean, if you really committed yourself to it and you said, you know what, I'm going to read this, it would not take you long. And if you want to know how long it would take you, you can Google it and it would tell you. But but in the scheme of things, it's not long. Matter of fact, it's probably not a whole lot longer than the time it takes you to binge watch several of the shows you watch on Netflix, just to be honest with you. So so, so, so because of that, we can read this narrative and think, man, that... That happened pretty quickly, like it's this short little window. And an example that I always give is we can read the story of a guy like Abraham, and in our mind, like that story unfolded over a couple of years. That story unfolded over a lifetime. We read the story of Joseph, and we just get little snippets and pictures. And so he's a boy, and then he's in in jail. The next thing you know, he's out. But but that's his life that we're reading there in a few short chapters. And because of that, we can look and say, all right, well, so all this unfolded. Let me just tell you kind of a little bit of of what we're looking at here. From the time that God promised a Savior in Genesis 3, in this very railed reference, to the time that Jesus showed up on the scene, or excuse me, to the time that uh, Malachi, the last chapter we have in the Old Testament, that's a thousand years. Think of that in the scheme of our nation. We were built in, what, 1776 is when, when that stuff kind of began to unfold, and we're only in 2022. So over a thousand years from, from Genesis 3 until we get to uh, the end there in, in Malachi, then you've got this 400 period, the, uh, the intertestamental period, the silent period, where God does not speak directly through a prophet or anyone. So, so we're over 1,400 years by the time that there's a promise of a Messiah till Jesus shows up on the ground. Now, in that time, right, God's given a lot of references. A lot of prophetic utterance, a lot of kings, David, right, longing for the day that the Messiah is going to come. And Jesus just says, guys, you don't understand how fortunate you are. Because there are a lot of prophets and kings and Old Testament saints who for over 1,400 years would have loved to have been privy to what you're privy to. And then I want you to think about us as recipients and living in a time of grace and a time of mercy where the revealed word of God has been given to us clearly, where it's been proclaimed and heralded in a variety of ways. And here's sometimes the things that we forget. 
And church, may we remember this. We often don't have it as bad as we think we do. Now, why do I say that? Look where we sit in the Bible Belt, if there's still such a thing. But we're in the center of it, if, if there is. It's, it's degrading, I think we'd all agree, but we're still there. In the middle of a nation where we have freedom to gather together, preach clearly about the coming Messiah who has come and conquered and is coming again. And we have this revealed word to us that, that is explaining clearly who Jesus is and what He's done and how He's accomplished this plan of salvation. And let me just tell you this, there's a lot of people in the world today who would love to have what we have today. There's a lot of people in history who would love to be in this moment, this time of grace, this time of God's mercy being revealed to us as He tarries and waits Till that exact moment where he says, it's time for me to come and reconcile all things to myself and judge those who refuse me. And there's a lot of people in the Old Testament who would love to be able to see clearly what we see clearly. May we be joyful today because we see what people of old would have longed to have been a part of. Now, why do I point that out? Because, oh, how we take these things for granted. I don't know how many Bibles you own, but I would tell you this. I've got a lot of them in my office. Different translations, different study helps, you know, all of those things. Do you realize that there was a time and place not too long ago in history that people didn't even have a copied version of the Word of God in their home? Let's just not talk about print. Let's talk about apps, right? I mean, I carry around in my phone volumes of things that people used to have had in a library. I mean, I can go to a coffee shop with my Bible and my phone, and I don't even have to actually have my written Bible, but I'm old school. I like print, right? I like writing with pen and paper. But nonetheless, all these helps, all these references, all these volumes that I have access to because of Wi-Fi and, and technology on my phone, yet... We're so guilty if we're not careful of neglecting it and not seeing the joy that has been given to us right in front of us. Think about what he says again. Blessed are the eyes. Blessed are the people that have what you have, that see what you see, that have heard what you heard. There are churches today that, that gather. There are believers today that gather and they hide with no one to really lead them. And not that God is not capable of providing that. He does and He will according to His grace. But, but they don't have what we have. Be joyful today because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Be joyful today because God has revealed Himself to you. Be joyful today because we are able to take hold of what other generations and other people have longed to have seen and had what we have today. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? It's interesting to me, and I thought about this week, that as much as we have and we've been given, how discontented we are. I mean, I think about myself personally, and, and with all that I've been blessed with, 
It's easy for me to be discontented, and we use it in a variety of ways, like boredom or whatever words that we want to use. We're always looking for something new and something else. And, and I think at the expense of our spiritual growth and understanding, we've got so much around us that, that we fail to see what we truly have. And our desire for something else, we fail to see what we've already got, what we've already been blessed with. And, and I think for me, one of the things that I thought about as I looked at this passage this week was just to stop and be thankful and be joyful truly of all that God has really given me. And that if every physical blessing that God has blessed me with ended today and I received no more, and God even in His divine plan stripped me of everything that I have, the fact that I have Him is all that I need. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. So maybe joy is missing because of sin in our heart and life, right? Psalm 51, what does David say in his Psalm of Repentance? Return to me the joy of my salvation. He had gone through a period in time where he had a lot, but guess what? The joy of salvation didn't seem present because sin had clouded it, because other things had gotten in the way. And for some of us this morning, it's just this call to be reminded, look at all that God has done for us. Look at how He's blessed us with. But I think there's also another good burden put on us. And this is the message that we've been called to share. A message of hope. A message of forgiveness. A message that you too can experience the joy of having your name written in the Lamb's book of life. So as God leads you this morning, there's several ways that you can respond. Of course, you can always respond right where you're sitting, right? Because the Lord hears you and He knows you and knows what's going on in your life. Sometimes we want to move. Sometimes we need to change your posture. We've said that before, that sometimes it's a, it's a way for us to, to even make more serious the commitment, the decision we're making. And so this altar is available up front for you to come and kneel and to pray. There's going to be people available up here to pray with you because sometimes we need that, right? We, we bear one another's burdens and sometimes we just need to share. We need someone to pray for us. And sometimes we need to have some, some real spiritual discussion that, that takes a while. And if that's the case, we have people at the back who would be happy to visit with you and sit down with you. And if maybe you're just a little uncomfortable walking forward in front of people, it's easier for you to walk back. That's available for you today. Here's our heart in this place above all, that as God has spoken to you in His Word and by His Spirit, that you would just respond as He's leading you to do. So we're going to pray, we're going to stand to our feet, and then you have the opportunity to respond this morning. Father in heaven, would you work in our hearts today and cause us to see the blessed joy that's available to us through Jesus Christ. And Father, for those of us in the room today who truly know what it means to have our name written in the book of life, Father, may we rejoice in that, repent of any sin that would rob us of that joy, and Father, walk faithfully with you. For those in this room who have never tasted of the joy that comes from repenting of sin and placing their faith in you, God, today would you stir in their heart and draw them to you that they might believe. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Would you please stand to your feet?